Today, I have the pleasure to speak once again with changemaker Hassan Reza. Hassan is head of equity, diversity, and inclusion at one of the largest NHS trusts in the country, the Kent Community Health NHS Foundation Trust. Hassan has a particular interest in disability and workforce racial equity, and is passionate about working collectively to produce better workplaces, atmospheres for all. But without further ado, Hassan, welcome to the podcast once again. Thank you so much, Melanie. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Fantastic to have you here one more time. And last time that we met, you shared your insights into how we can proactively make better workforce atmospheres for all with a particular focus on workforce racial equity. But this time, I'm keen to speak with you again to focus more on disability. This is a subject I don't feel I know much about. I have the theoretical knowledge, but I don't feel like I've really metabolized what it means in the context of business. And I know this is a subject that is particularly close to your heart. So I'm wondering if you can share your personal experience with us to start off with. Yeah, of course. Thank you. And, and like I said, thank you for having me again. It's, it's really a pleasure to speak with you. And every time we catch up, there's so much um, takeaways, for, I think, for both of us. So I'm sure today will be the same. Um, as you said, disability equity and the experience of employees and people in society in general with disabilities seen or unseen uh, and kind of be that physical or, or emotional and mental health is, is really personal to me. So I was diagnosed with cancer um, at the age of six, so just over 20 years ago, um, and have been a heavy service user of the NHS in that time uh, with over sort of a dozen operations and interventions and, and other similar things um so as a result of that and i'm sure as many um people who, who themselves have experience of a disease like cancer there's a lot of secondary impacts so there is the obvious uh impact of the disease itself but there's other physical and unseen conditions um that can come about like chronic pain uh etc which which have really um given me a unique insight into some of the challenges that can present themselves through academia, through primary school to secondary school and into the professional um, working sphere. So it's something that I'm really passionate that I talk about. I, I do try and, and champion the vulnerability that I ask others to, to, to um, express in, in being quite open and, and conversational about my uh, own health and my experience. So I think it's, while it is something that is so personal and so private, it's also, I think, something that we need to discuss more openly uh, and, and sort of allow people a little insight into our private lives because I think that's what it's going to take for the changes to come about so in other areas of equity diversity and inclusion we've seen some real shift change and I think a big part of that is because people have come forward and been very vulnerable in discussing the discrimination that they have firsthand faced and I think that's what's desperately needed in the disability sphere um, because a lot of people for very understandable reasons aren't uh, comfortable uh, discussing these, these things and um, because of the lack of visible senior uh, leadership across organizations who are either um, have a, a disability that, that one can observe or um, have kind of either an unseen disability or a health condition that isn't visible and are talking about it um, that you haven't seen the same flow of, of movement and changes we've seen in other areas. So again, thank you for 
taking the time to discuss this topic and, and giving it the importance that it's due. Thank you, Hassan, for sharing so candidly your experience. When you were talking about disability, the first question that came to my mind is, what is a disability? You mentioned that we don't often see it. Is it something that we see? Is it something that we feel? I would love to start with that because I feel like yeah. that would probably provide the foundation for the rest of the conversation. Um, so, I mean, legally, there's a definition that the Equality Act uses and, and other occupational health providers that, that you may engage with in, in your organizations will use. And that's around sort of a long-standing condition that impacts uh, an individual for, I think, more than 12 months, if I'm not mistaken. In reality, though, I think defining a disability is, is difficult and, and it is subjective to individuals, which, which again, adds another layer of, of complication. So, um, and I'm going to be completely candid and honest with my own take here. I've seen and I've been in, in um, meetings and spaces where people have talked about their health conditions, but then also added the caveat that they do not consider themselves to be disabled, which is completely fine. Um, but I think the challenge that it presents is because by the definition that we can take from the Equality Act of disability, they would be considered to have a disability. But as a result of the fact that they don't want to um, align themselves that way on our uh, employee record system or in other places where they can make such a declaration, I think that we therefore end up with a um, non-representative impression, A, of, of what our workforce looks like, B, of what the needs of our workforce are and see we don't then end up with the conversation being engaged with in the way I think it needs to be engaged with. So like I said in, in, in that sort of introduction, I think the need for vulnerability and the need for readiness to discuss some of these things from people like myself who have decades of lived experience um, is so crucial. Uh, and, and I've already said that that disability could take many forms and that in itself I think it's something that COVID has really shone a light on. So pre-COVID, I doubt there was a real understanding of the fact that people could have underlying health conditions that would leave them very vulnerable and need of support. Um, but that wasn't something that was common knowledge. It wasn't something that was discussed in society. I remember that when um, the letters went out for people needing to shield, there was some really difficult conversations that people shared with me around the fact that um, and, and kind of I'm sharing with their permission, but anonymized that they had been under the management of, of their current line manager for many years, but they'd never discussed their health because it had never um, been something that had ever impacted their work. But now they were in a situation where they were being told by the government that they should shield um, and they needed to kind of have a very complicated conversation in a very short period of time because of the realities of, of that, that request from the government. So for me, it, it sort of, again, highlighted the importance that at some level be that between uh, an employee and their line manager or an employee and, and their um, HR or workforce or people director there needs to be some conversation around your health and, and your well-being because of the fact that that will then allow support systems to be put in place and I can talk more about that um, what kind of things that I've experienced and what kind of things that um, are on offer but in essence I guess I've really gone a long-winded way around answering your question. A disability uh, is, is something that I would say impacts your life. Now, that, that impact may be physical, that impact may be unseen, um, but it, it impacts your life in one way or another. And it means that you, as an individual, may need to take 
an adapted course of action, be that in your personal or your professional life, to um, tasks and, and, and uh, certain procedures that maybe someone who doesn't have a, a senior or a senior disability wouldn't need to do those things. Thank you for that explanation. And I love that you mentioned well-being a few times. It seems to me that it's impossible to discuss inclusion or disability without thinking about well-being. And as you were talking and you mentioned COVID as well, I was reflecting upon the fact that sometimes our well mental well-being can come in the way of our work, whether we're stressed or depressed. Would that then be a disability or would that then be a challenge with our well-being? That's a really interesting question. Um, <clears throat> so on the spot, my answer would honestly be, I don't know. I, I, I think, again, it can depend on each individual, but I think that's where the interesting overlap exists between well-being and other equality work and, and general health and, and disability conversations. And like you said, the two do go hand in hand. It's, it's a conversation that I'm having a lot in my workplace and other workplaces that often well-being is its own department that sits separate to equality and diversity but I think that very much so a lot of the work that I do in equality and diversity impacts on the programs that the well-being team is trying to deliver and vice versa they'll be delivering things that are impacting on the equality and diversity of our workforce so to see more of a link in that area I think is very important but I think we obviously we have to be somewhat careful around what we define as a disability because of the fact that there are legal protections in place with people who have a recognized disability under the Equality Act um, and as a result we, we kind of need to make sure that we are in line uh, with, with what um, that states. Great thank you that makes perfect sense. So then let's move on to the importance of declaring a disability at work. You mentioned that some people may be yeah. fearful of doing so. So what's the deal here? What do you advise? So I think the reality, unfortunately, is that people continue to experience discrimination because of their disabilities. And again, whether they're seen or unseen. So whether that's a, a um, physical disability, whether that's a mental health condition, whether that's something like chronic pain, which is neither a mental health condition nor a physical disability, but has very real impacts on your, your physical interaction and engagement with your workplace. Um, people are being discriminated against, despite the fact uh, it's often assumed that the Equality Act is there. It's a, it's, it's a legal uh, protection for people with disabilities as well as uh, the other eight protected characteristics on top of disability. Um, but the reality is, unfortunately, that there continue to be uh, employers and at a more micro level managers who work around or directly contravene the legal protections. And there's a lot of people with disabilities as well as other protected characteristics who either aren't aware of the legal protections they have or aren't comfortable uh, pursuing those legal protections. So as a result, almost end up suffering in silence. Um, so if, if we are able to overcome some of those barriers and, and we are able to be more open uh, and vulnerable at declaring our disability. Again, it doesn't need to be in a space like what you, the conversation you and I are having right now. It can be very much uh, between uh, line manager and manager. Um, the benefits of that are multifold. So first and foremost, as an organization, if I have a representative understanding of what my workforce population looks like, what the profile of my, the profile of my workforce is, I can then 
enact programs of, of work and change where required to support that workforce. So if I know I've got a large number of uh, employees working within Kent community who do uh, declare a disability, I'll make sure that we are then addressing those areas. Now I try and do that anyway, but obviously with a more rounded understanding, you can then develop more meaningful programs of work. So that's one end of it. The other end of it is then on a on an individual level, if my management are aware, if my uh, the colleagues who need to be in, in the know or in the know, they can then also support me in a multitude of ways. So if again, if I take my own example, my manager uh, makes time for me to attend hospital appointments as per our trust disability leave policy. My manager um, will. Uh, enable me to work flexibly if my pain is, is very flared and, and I'm having a day where maybe the nine to five isn't working and, and maybe I'm, I'm going to work in the afternoon to the evening but we have a relationship whereby they will enable that to happen uh, and while both protecting the end outcome which is our deliverables but also the individuals that work towards those deliverables on a wider level it allows access to things like occupational health adapted desks, adapted working equipment. So depending on what your working environment is, um, whatever adaptations may be possible. And then even further than that, and sort of even less discussed is then the third sort of tier to all of this, which is the government's access to work scheme. So the DWP, the Department of Work and Pensions has an access to work scheme, which can fund uh, quite a large financial amount towards certain adaptations and certain things that otherwise may not be covered under uh, an organization's normal budget so your basic adaptations are, are, are required that the organization cover them for example you know if, if, if i needed uh, a specific working chair or desk that that would come under the duty of the organization to provide that but there are other things um, for example if someone is not able to travel into work by public transport because um, unfortunately buses and trains aren't as accessible as as we may hope they are or we may imagine they are access to work um, can provide a fund for that person to take a taxi into work um, there, there's a whole way it works and it's, it's partly funded by the employee partly funded by access to work but in essence the point is that they will help in assisting in that person being able to get into and quite literally access their place of work and kind of the examples um, of, of other things often go quite far. So if I'm not mistaken, um, they also um, can even fund a, a role for another person if, if a support capacity is needed. They are able to fund specialist equipment that may be sort of um, above and beyond the reach of a normal organisation's offering. So there is such a wealth of support available, but to be able to access it, people need to be having some level of, of open conversation uh, with their management teams. Thank you, Hassan. I understand better now. There really does seem to be a lot we can do once we declare that we have a disability. Yeah. Um, I couldn't help but think, to, to what extent is it that we are scared of declaring that we have a disability? And to what extent is that we're either not aware that the challenge we're facing is a disability or we don't consider ourselves disabled so the not considering ourselves disabled i think is, is a conversation that needs a little bit more exploring and, and um one that i have my own views on but i think we would probably benefit from getting um some um wider perspectives on that because there there is definitely reasons behind why people feel that they, they don't want to um 
declare themselves as disabled because they don't see themselves as disabled. But I think it took me moving into working in equality and diversity to recognize um, the importance for you, the individual, for the organization, but also for the wider um, protected group, um, that the more people who are, who are um, taking that step of vulnerability to make the declaration, the more an organization is recognizing uh, the needs and, and um, demands of their people. So it's a conversation itself, but in terms of the um, lack of, of readiness people may have or, or the fear they may have, I, I can think of so many examples, unfortunately, where I've been contacted by friends, by uh, other people in my network, young people who are just starting out in the workplace and asking the question, Hassan, should I declare my disability or will it hold me back? And there's a, so many reasons why that question is being asked, partly, as I said earlier, because there aren't a lot of people in, in, in organisations, by and large, um, who have disabilities who are, who are kind of open about it at a senior level. So if I take um, the last few NHS trusts I've worked at, there have been some people, but by and large, it's not as represented as uh, a diverse diversity around ethnicity, diversity around gender, et cetera. So that's one um, kind of stalling point that if I don't see people like me at that level, then is this a reason why? Is it because if I declare it, it's going to hold me back? That's sort of one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is that, as I said, unfortunately, there are um, there are organisations and individuals who, who won't necessarily uh, abide by um, the regulations and the laws that are out there, and they may well discriminate against an individual because of their disability. And one only needs to go to the Employment Tribunal website, um, the gov.uk website, and you can see the multitude of cases where disability discrimination is being proven as taking place in workplaces and all sorts of workplaces, not just any one sector um, and, and including private and public sector. Um, so there's all of those barriers that exist. I guess the other thing for me is that disability is, is that one unique protected characteristic that I've personally experienced. People feel they have an open license. So if I give you an example of that, I, I um, a few years ago had to take almost a year off um, to recover from some very, very extensive surgery. Um, so when I was six, they replaced all of uh, the bones in one of my legs with, with metal uh, prostheses to remove the cancer and kind of uh, give me some functionality. And after about 18 years, that needed uh, replacing. And that kind of the example I use is a car. It's very similar. You need your MOTs in the second that you've replaced you know, a bumper or something, chances are it's going to rust and he's going to need replacing again at some point. And that's maybe a very crude example, but it, it sort of summarizes um, what people who have prosthetic implants face to a degree. Um, so I needed to take a year off. Um, that was covered un under the, the sick leave policy of that organization. Uh, it was something that the organization was aware of when they employed me. Um, and it was something that uh, I had been discussing with local management for almost six months in the lead up to um, that period of absence. In all of that, there was uh, a senior leader who made the comment about their own experience of having had uh, some kind of procedure on their knee, which only needed them to have two weeks off. So why was I asking so long off? And what really struck me was, I think, when it comes to race or gender or sexuality or any of the other protected characteristics, no one would dare ask a question like that. 
But when it comes to disability and health, because people fall ill, because people suffer ailments, they suddenly feel that if I'm having a conversation about a quite um, serious and long-standing health condition, I also have lived experience because I once upon a time, you know, uh, damaged my leg as well. Um, and that has a hugely uh, negative impact because it really turns people off wanting to have those vulnerable conversations. It really makes people feel like they are going to be discriminated against. They are going to be held accountable for something that unfortunately is, is not in their hands. You know, um, there are some disabilities that may come about because of an accident. There are other disabilities that people are born with. Um, either way, it, it's, it's circumstances that are out of our hands. And even on that, I've kind of touched on something that um, I think I should also clarify that people may join an organization and not have a disability. They may become disabled during the course of their employment. So they may um, fall ill with, with, with a long-standing health condition. They may have some kind of personal uh, accident or, or uh, event which results in them then having a physical or non-physical unseen disability. And again, that's, that's another element we forget. We very often will ask the question at employment, do you consider yourself to have a disability, yes or no? And that's it. We never ask the question again. If someone's with me for 10 years, their circumstances could change massively in that 10 years. Um, so I hope some of that helps answering your question. It really does, Hassan. And uh, there's so many things that came to my mind as I was listening to you speak. But one of them is to what extent are we educating our people around disability? I don't ever remember taking a course on disability that would explain to me what it is, how I would need to manage it if I felt I was affected or if a colleague was affected. Is that right? Is there really no kind of uh, awareness, education around it, the same way we have about gender and race? You have hit the nail on the head. And I think, again, it is one of the multitude of, of challenges that we face that there isn't. There isn't enough around that. And it's something that so when I was at Lucian and Greenwich, I tried to put together a pack around guiding people towards access to work um, and, and the offers that they could uh, potentially take up through that DWP scheme. Um, I try in, in my work, wherever I am, to through my own kind of um, honesty about my experiences and, and the help that I've, I've been able to access through um, my workplaces, encourage others to come forward. But I think by and large, the problem is that, yeah, we don't prepare people. We don't tell them about the support systems that are available. We don't talk about the adaptations. We don't talk about occupational health, et cetera. And inversely, we also, um, at an organizational level and at a societal level, do not prepare people for being aware of their own rights around the Equality Act, et cetera. Now, I know when I was, this is kind of, again, a little bit of a side, but when I was at school, we did citizenship and we had, uh, I think, one, uh, session a week around sort of the law etc that was the early days of the Equality Act so I don't know if that's changed at all and whether or not these conversations are happening in academia um, I know you work in academia so it may be something that you have more knowledge of but I think it, it's a multifaceted approach we need, we need to start to prepare people from a much younger age to understand um, what their rights are but also understand what they can access uh, and my experience is in terms of positive and unfortunate when it comes to disability, didn't start in, in uh, my, my professional life when I, when I got my first job. It, it was pretty much from um, the day I entered uh, primary school and in secondary school. And unfortunately, again, 
it wasn't just other children. Um, there, there was uh, unfortunately examples of teachers and other leaders within uh, the organisations that I studied at who could have done better and who unfortunately maybe did choose uh, what would now be seen as an inappropriate course of action or a microaggressive course of action. Um, but I hope some of those elements with conversations like this are, are, are going to make change. Uh, I think we've seen that to some degree with a lot of work to go, but with some degree with workforce uh, racial equity and, and general societal racial equity because of the conversations that COVID forced us to have between 2020 and 2021-22, because of the conversations that the murder of George Floyd forced us to have. Um, we're seeing that with other areas like with gender, like with sexuality, but we need to see similar conversations start to organically grow around disability as well. You're absolutely right. And my hope is that as we're becoming more and more aware of well-being initiatives, that the challenge with disability will come will, will come to the surface and we'll yeah. have to tackle it in a more obvious and intentional way. Yeah, exactly. You mentioned many times your experience, and I would love to know a little bit more about the reality of things because while I can try and understand based on what you told me and the kind of support you might get what are actually the realities of a professional life and managing such a long-term health condition or disability how does it look like that's a really good question and thank you for asking and again I think that's something that we don't ask enough so the reality is, I mean, I've already mentioned um, sort of my experience of chronic pain and, and that can change day in, day out. Um, I think I've suffered a degree of chronic pain since 2001 every day of my life. So it impacts you every day, but some days are worse and some days are better. And again, getting that across to employers, getting that across to teachers at school and, and your social network, et cetera, is, is difficult because unless you, you live with someone, um, I think you can't necessarily experience and appreciate the insight. So I know, I mean, I've discussed this with my parents from their experience when I was growing up. I discussed with my wife after our marriage and, and they all really recognise that from the outside, it's very difficult to appreciate how some of these um, health conditions can manifest in ways that are unexpected. So a lot of people may hear a diagnosis of cancer and assume one thing, but not realise that there's a multitude of secondary conditions that very often arise because of the treatment for cancer back when i was having chemotherapy it was uh, it was a well it still is a poison but it was a poison then as well it's a lot worse than it is now um so the, the impact on you physically mentally emotionally um can be really profound um so i mean within the working environment like i said that there will be days where either uh my sleep has been impacted because of uh my my pain or um, it's particularly flared during the day and, and that can make it hard to work. And I think where I'm fortunate is I have managers who throughout my career have either been very supportive or because of, I think partly because of the fact that this is something I've lived with so long, I've been quite stubborn in the fact that when I needed uh, time, I took time. Um, it wasn't always well received, but I, I think that the importance of, of prioritizing yourself can never be understated. Um, in terms of kind of other aspects, so there's always, I mentioned having to, having had sort of eight months to a year off, there's there's those sort of milestone interventions that someone with, with a, a complicated health history may have that they have to plan around. So you sort of have to plan your career around that, you have to plan 
job moves and other things around that. Um, and then on the other other end, there's sort of the, the multitude of professionals who continue to take care of me. So I think at its peak, I believe I had in excess of sort of 10 to 15 teams across the UK who were involved in my care in one way or another. Um, that's reduced a little bit, not massively, but it's reduced a little bit. But as a result, you have a lot of hospital appointments throughout the year. You have a lot of follow-ups. You have a lot of investigations that continue to make sure that you're still in as good health as you can be. Um, and again, an employer being supportive of making the time available for you to attend and address those things, I think is crucial in terms of for the employer, their interests should be that an employee who is feeling like they've got their health and well-being in some semblance of control or as much control as can be possible is an employee who's going to perform um, better, who's going to engage better, who's going to embed themselves better. And that's exactly what my experience has been, be it at Kent, at Oxley's, at Lucian, and all of the NHS trusts I've worked at. I've been so well supported that I've never felt that I haven't been able to address my kind of immediate and long-term needs to then ensure that I'm available and, and fully um, engaged with, with, with work. Um, but there, there's so much to it. And I think uh, people with different kinds of disabilities would also tell you a, a different but similar story in the fact that every day is different. And what has been so important to my success in managing it to a degree, and I'll be honest, I, I, I'm not perfect at managing my health. Um, there is a lot more that I can do and should do, but whatever degree of control I have had in the years and do currently have is because I've felt that I can have those conversations with my management and have them understanding of, of where I'm at so that if I do need to take time, if I do need to flex my work, if I do need to attend a hospital appointment, that they can do that. And I guess, you know, sort of in wrapping up that, that point, even around hospital appointments, a lot of people are used to a six to 12 week wait and, and things kind of being uh, arranged with, with a good amount of um, pre-notice. But when you work so closely with the same healthcare provider for so many years, there are occasions where um, you may get an email or a text from the, the surgeon secretary or the oncologist secretary or the consultant secretary saying that we have a free appointment, you know, this week or next week, can you make it? Which is sort of not what an employer may expect, but it's a conversation that I've had with the last three managers who've, who've kind of been involved with my direct management in, in the last sort of three, four years. So that they're aware there will be times I may turn around and say that, is it possible for us to rearrange X and Y on, on Friday or whatever day so that I can, I can make that? And it's not necessarily then a question of that's not the normal uh, engagement that they're used to with healthcare providers, but they, they're aware of the fact that um, with a long-standing condition, some of those things can uh, morph and adapt over the years. Thank you, Hassan. It's It seems that uh, your experience is really reminding us of awareness and adaptation and flexibility. And that's why I felt having this conversation was uh, really suitable for the change maker podcast that yeah. I'm running just because it is about creating an environment for change and leading on change. Thank you so much for sharing so candidly what you have been through and what you're going through. It does seem like uh, it has been uh, a very key journey. Yeah, but, you know, thank you for, for prioritizing this. Thank you for recognizing the need 
um, to give a voice to these discussions. Um, and, and I think the role that, that yourself and, and people like you play is as important. If, if I am ready to discuss what is very personal and private to me, um, but no one's ready to give it a platform, then we wouldn't really get anywhere. So um, I, I really, really do appreciate what you're doing, Melania. I think it's so important and, and I hope that um, you're able to achieve everything you want to achieve around this area and you know that in any way that I can support, I'm always on hand to do just that. Thank you so much, Hassan. Like we said, the start is understanding and education yeah. and talking about it. So I hope it's conversations like this that will initiate the change that is needed around this topic and that next time we'll speak we'll be able to reflect upon how much progress we have made uh, so far so yes thank you so much for speaking with me today i have really learned so much from you and i know that our listeners will do as well so thank you so much for coming back on the show and i hope to see you again soon Thank you. And I'm sure uh, your listeners will have to put up with me again at some point. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you.